0: Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Hi there and uh, welcome. If you've lived in this world for any amount of time, you eventually realize that there's something wrong with the world. And uh, what the Bible calls that something wrong with the world is is sin. And uh, it's not a very popular will, word. People don't like talking about sin anymore, but people still like doing it, apparently, and uh, therefore it's an important topic. Uh, It's something that affects all of us every day because uh, we ourselves have to deal with it in ourselves and in in other people. I heard someone say once that uh, the doctrine of sin is is the most easily empirically verifiable teaching of the Bible. So uh, today I have my friend uh, Cornel Verstadier and he's going to be sharing a little bit uh, about that and uh, we'll we'll be discussing
1: it sort of in between so thanks cornell over to you great thanks any and hi everybody um, i'm just going to pray for us before we get started so father we just thank you that we can come to you in a time such as this lord god thank you lord that um, you are good that you are with us and that you are for us and you know, that we as your church can gather over multiple media types of media and so we just want to honor you today, God. We thank you that this is also a time that calls for wisdom, God, in the church. It's a time where we need to understand your word. We need to understand your will, God, because, um, you know, it's times like these also that are very formative. And we just want to ask, Father, that you, will, that you will teach us your ways, God. That you will help us, Lord, to understand your goodness, your grace, your love, um, and your judgment, Father. And that you will help us to, to be people who reflect your character on in the earth in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, recently I was driving uh, through Johannesburg and I saw a a billboard on the side of the road and this billboard was advertising the services for a bank and the billboard read you were born worthy. So I drove past this um, and it didn't really stick with me that much but afterwards I started thinking about it and that led to a little bit of a mini existential crisis, right? Because there were a few questions about that that kind of haunted me. Firstly, I wanted to know, worthy of what? What what is it that I'm worthy of? Am I worthy of your services? Am I worthy to be a client of yours? Am I worthy to loan your money? What what is it that that I'm worthy of? What is the standard that you're claiming um, I'm worthy of, right? And secondly, If you're saying it as a bank, does that carry any weight? What gives you the authority to tell me that that I'm worthy? And if if it doesn't carry weight, then who can say something like that to me that it would carry weight? Because if I think about it, it does feel pretty good. I mean, most of the time, to be honest, I don't really feel worthy. I feel that I don't make the cut. And when someone says something like that, it does uh, feel pretty good, right? and that was just uh, maybe my thoughts, you know, on that day were particularly deep. <laughs> but it just got me thinking about that. It got me thinking about, um, you know, this, this concept, what they were probably appealing to, or what they seemed to be appealing to, was that there is some type of standard that I now adhere to, right? Some type of standard that it's right to adhere to. And they were claiming, claiming I do. And um, that's kind of where I got the idea or where I started talking to any about, about doing a sermon um, that we're doing today. Now, what that standard is, is what C.S. Lewis would have called the moral law. The idea that there is a universal law or standard to which everyone agrees that we should adhere to. And I really like the way that C.S. Lewis uh, describes it. He says he's, he finds two things that are quite particular or peculiar rather about people. On the one hand, they're kind of haunted by this idea that the world should operate in a certain way, that things ought to be a certain way and that people ought to act in a certain way. And secondly, that people don't seem to act in that way. So there's this, this universal law. Of how the world ought to work, and this kind of observation that we tend to fall short of it. And he says it's different from things like natural laws, because if you think about a law like gravity, right, that's observable. It's it's factual. Every time I drop something, so if I were to take this book and drop it right now, it's gonna it's gonna drop at. You studied engineering as well, and I forgot. I think it's like eight point, point some, something meters per, meters per second, right? It's it's observable. I can show you every time. I drop it. It does that. It's it's a fact, right? It's not like the book has to think about the the fact that it ought to drop to the ground. The, the, The law of gravity is acting upon it. That's a natural law. But the law of morality is a little bit different because it's not always something that we observe and yet it's still there. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're going to the shops the day before national lockdown, right? Things are crazy. People are panic buying. Um, you're trying to get to to the closest checkers so that you can just buy your favorite chocolates or whatever it is that you want to be sure you don't go without um, and you get to to the to the shopping center and there's chaos in 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 the parking lot right people are looking for spots people are kind of walking around trying to find a spot and and lo and behold as you as you drive in a guy walks out with his trolley and um, he opens his boot right in front of you and he starts loading it in and You get excited and you stand there and you put on your indicator and you're waiting for him patiently to to finish offloading and then get in his car and drive out. And as he reverses and he drives out and you're about to go into that parking spot, a little mini comes and he just kind of rams in there in front of you, you know, and he takes your spot. And you're furious. You're like, how could you do that? This is not the way things ought to be. You have done something wrong, right? You kind of appeal to the standard which you believe there is um, and really are experiencing right now in a very strong way there should be. And you also um, suspect or, or actually require the other person to also adhere to that standard. You believe that the person in that mini is also, um, also understands that they should not have done what they just did. But that's not the fact. The fact is that the mini um, drove in in front of you. He's taken your parking lot. So it seems that there is this common understanding that there is a way that things should be done. And yet in practice, what we observe often is that it's not the way um, that things are done. And that's what we call the moral law. Now, there's a lot of debate around where that comes from. Um, And today, I specifically only want to focus on the Christian view. So what does the Bible say about the moral law? What the Bible tells us is that the moral law is given to us by God. It tells us that the law of God is written on our hearts. And what is the law of God? Well, we read in Matthew, verse 22, chapter 22, where Jesus is is, um, speaking and he says, they ask him, what is the greatest commandment? And he says the following. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor, as yourself on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets so he says there are two things loving the lord your god and loving your neighbor as yourself is the law given to us by god and it summarizes um, what is what is written in the law and the bible also tells us that that is then written onto our hearts that whether we have been taught it or not there's this understanding that morality should be adhered to that we shouldn't um Fraud other people we shouldn't cheat other people there shouldn't be murder and injustice in the world and and that's something that's really easy to prove because people are really passionate about some of those causes right and romans 2 actually expands on that where it says in verse 15 or rather verse 14 for when gentiles who do not have the law that would be the mosaic law in this case By nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So it tells us that whether you've been taught this Mosaic law, the law that's contained in the Bible or not, there still is the evidence of it on our hearts in that, we, we have this code that we, that we have to adhere to. And with that obviously comes um, a certain type of pressure. Because there's another biblical doctrine, the one of sin, which any mentioned right at the start of the sermon. The doctrine that at, right at the beginning or close to the beginning of creation, any will know the timelines maybe better than me, but right at the beginning of creation there was this, um, this separation between God and man. There was, there was a, a rebellion against God. And in that we became um, we, we went into a, a type of a fallen state where our hearts no longer tended towards God and towards His commandments and towards good, but tended towards evil and away from Him. And we, we find ourselves kind of in this type of struggle, and that creates a struggle that we, that we still have today where we understand what the moral law is, but we don't seem to be completely able to adhere to it. I don't know, Henny, do you have any additional thoughts on that?
0: Uh, yeah it's, I, I think I agree totally with what what you 're saying you know the the whole thing about being worthy implies a standard. Um, you can only be worthy if you can fulfill the standard and just the fact that on the one hand we feel guilty when we do certain things uh, or or we feel outraged when other people do certain things to us or to other people to to one another um, implies that there 's a there's, a, there's something inside of us that, that says this is the way things ought to be. Everyone ought to act in a certain way. Everyone ought to do that, and everyone ought not to do um, this. You know, and, and I think it's, it, it's, it's pretty much universal human experience, which proves exactly what what you were um, saying about, C, uh, in line with C.S. Lewis, that that it's a, it's a universal moral law, um, and we can deny the moral law, but we still feel the guilt or the outrage, which proves that it's still there.
1: Mm. Yeah, you know, And, you know, the Bible has, has quite a bit to say about, about this, about how people kind of react um, to this moral law. And we're going to get into a story in a moment. But before we get there, there's also a kind of a, a global debate going on at the moment um, where people are asking the question, what set of beliefs will make us the most moral? What will make us as a society the best effectively that we can be? And something that's come out of that is some people would say, well, it's not religion you know, because if I look at religion, I mean, there's so much injustice that the church has been responsible for over the years, and not just the church. I mean, religion as a whole, you get religious conflicts, you get tension between religious groups, you get hatred and and divisions and racism and all these things that seem to be kind of, in a sense, connected with the church. How can that be the answer right and and they go on to say that religious or fundamental religious beliefs can be dangerous and that our society should be free from that that we should be free from religion right and to an extent they have a point because yes there are um, religious conflicts yes there are um, tensions between religious groups there are these injustices that we see in the world but my question would just be well what is the effect then of removing a belief like or removing religion from society what i would suspect then is if you do uh, remove religion that you would find more um more moral beliefs you would find a more moral society right with less violence less um oppression yeah and so i did a bit of a study uh which i'm just going to share with you and i found it uh, or what i found was quite interesting um firstly I had a look at some of these kind of religious injustices or oppressions or conflicts, and the one that people oftentimes mention is the Crusades, right? Where um, in the I think it was in the Middle Ages, not, but the Christian nations went. Uh, they saw as part of the goal to to recapture the Holy Land. So they went to the Middle East and they slaughtered um, many, many Muslims. The, the estimations are that between one and three million Muslims were killed or people were killed um, in that time. And, and the number that's most popular is about 1.7 million people. So a lot of people um, died because of this. And maybe I just want to say that right at the start that um, even though we're doing kind of this thought experiment, I don't believe at all that the Bible uh, kind of justifies violence like that. It, we have to interpret the Bible in terms of the, the Old and the New Testament, and it becomes very clear that there is not a justification for violence. There is not a justification for killing or, or harming or oppressing someone else just, be, just on the basis of that you believe that you are right and, and, and someone else is not, right? Jesus taught that we should love our enemies that we should pray for those who persecute us, very um, contradictory to what we see in these events. but I'm going to, I'm going to use it as a, as a thought experiment, okay. So in, in the Crusades, one to three million people died. I went onto an atheist forum just to get the most exaggerated number that I could, and they said up to six million people. So that is kind of the max, okay six million people died. and then after that there was a 30 years war, also the 30 Years War also in, in, in Europe, which was I think more infighting between Christians and they estimate there are about eight million people. Um, died. And that, that is a lot of people, right? But, but what happens when we look at irreligious societies? Well, let's consider something like communism, right? Communism, where one of the fundamental principles is that religion is a form of oppression. Uh, Karl Marx is famously quoted as saying that uh, religion is the opium of the people, right? And he criticized it and said that we should strive to be free from the illusion of religion and then we would reach kind of a a state where the human spirit would be free to prosper and and to to go from strength to strength and to achieve great things. So communism tried to eliminate um, religion from society, right? And what we see there is not that they became a more moral society. The estimates for how many people were... Murdered through a, a mixture of um, exterminate or camps, labor, forced labor camps, starvation, and other, other means in, in, in communist regimes, which mainly are the Soviet Union and, and Communist China, but there are some others, is between 100 and 150 million people through the oppression of communism. Now, that is, that's probably a lot more than if you put most of the religious wars um, together. And except for that, there's also other conflicts or, or ideological oppression. Like for example, the Nazis in, um, in Germany who, who killed up to six million Jews in the Holocaust. And that was based on, on a theory of, of eugenics and evolution where it said, races are not all equal, right? It, was, it wasn't a religious um, motivation, it was a, a evolutionary motivation, right? And, we're not, and that started World War II that killed 75 million people eventually. And then you've kind of got the, the other causes, which are, are things um, that they would, you know, atheists would say that, I read somewhere, and I strongly, strongly disagree with this, but they said that um, they, they attribute HIV deaths um, to religion because they say that Roman Catholics do not endorse the use of condoms or the use of contraception. So it, it causes HIV to spread and lots of people die from that. I saw once that where they said up to 30 million people died from HIV and they, they attributed this to that religious belief, right? Um, and we're not going to go into the debate around that, because I think there are better ways of stopping AIDS than using condoms, like another teaching of the church, which is don't have um, intercourse outside of marriage, but but then I look at something like abortion, right? abortion which says that um, a mother, or that basically humans have the right to choose the fate of a life, um, that have the right to decide whether a life of a of a child is is able to continue or not and i understand that there's a lot of arguments around that but i mean a a big bulk of that is 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 not based on 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 like the, the the outlier case of of it being um very special circumstances and we look at how what the stats are around that up to this year alone year to date 10 million babies have been aborted and since um 1980 1.5 1.5 billion or 1,569 million babies have been aborted. And that's, that, is, um, that is a lot. That's 20 times more than people that were killed in World War II. Um, so we find that when you remove religious belief uh, from from society, it's not that we become more moral because... Some of the, the forms of oppression, like in, 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 the, in the communist countries, were, were not based on, on a religious belief. So they were actually based on removing the religious standard, on the removal of accountability to some god, um, or to a god, to, 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 to the god. Um, the fact that, or the belief that we would not be held accountable for our actions, and we see just the degradation um, of it into, into, into the deaths of millions of, and millions of people. Maybe I should pause there, rather. That's quite a heavy point. I don't know if you want to say anything on that, Eddie.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's it's um, ironic that the philosophies um, you mentioned—communism, which is um, against religion, um, evolution, eugenics uh, with with Hitler and, and the Nazis, which is also against religion, uh, secularism uh, with you know abortion, which um, you know. Um, pioneers abortion and, and, and fights for abortion rights, feminism, all that kind of stuff. Um, those are some of the ideologies that say that religion and Christianity in particular are, lead to violence and oppression. Uh, and it's ironic that those are the very ideologies which produced orders of magnitude more violence and oppression than the church at its worst ever could. Um, and um, it, it just proves your point that, um, yes, religion can be bad, but it seems that irreligion
1: is even worse. Mm. And it's, it's interesting. You might find it interesting to know that in the Bible, Jesus actually criticized both religion and irreligion. And we're going to look at a story now where, um, where he actually addresses this in the form, form of a parable. So I want you to read with me from Luke 15. So it's a famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, I like to call it the, maybe the, the parable of the prodigal sons because there were, there were two. And let's read together from verse 11. Then he, that being Jesus, said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my portion of goods that fall to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring out the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now the older son was in the field and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving with you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I may may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, that's old English for prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, You are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make Mary and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. So here we have a story where Jesus talks about a father and two sons. And these two sons respond to the father in very different ways. But both of them effectively have the same issue. Both of them want the father's stuff rather than they want the father. They just approach it differently. The younger brother says, well, Father, give me my inheritance. Now, obviously, you, you got an inheritance when someone died, right? Um, you inherited it from that person after, after they passed away. And the way that I interpret that is he was basically saying to him, Father, you know, I don't, I don't care. You can, you're as good. You could be there. Just give me the things which, which belong to me. And I'm going to go off. And he does go off. And he spends that on, on prodigal living. He, he wastes all of it away, right? He lives irreligiously. And soon he finds that the world lets him down. When all of that is spent, he's, a famine hits the land and, and, and he finds himself destitute. And no one, none of the people who he had been at these great parties with or, or had known in that time, are, are suddenly around to, to help him out and to, and, and, and to feed him. And he finds himself destitute. But then he eventually comes to his senses. And then we've got the older son. The son who was in the field. And this son also wanted the father's stuff, but in a different way. We see that this son was not in the house. He was working in the field. And he comes back after this younger son had come back. And his heart is revealed, right? He's offended at this. And, And listen to what he says to his father. He says, Father, all these years I've been working. I've been toiling away at the family business. I've given it my all. I've sacrificed for it, you know. I deserve this i deserve at the fatted cough like my younger brother shouldn't be getting it he he's he spent it out on 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 prostitutes and, and 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 he wasted it he he basically threw it back in your face i haven't done that i'm not i'm not that bad right the religious mindset that says based on my actions i deserve better based on you know, what I'm, I'm doing. I adhere to this to this standard, what we spoke of earlier. I adhere to this moral law. Even if I don't, at least I hear, adhere to it better than my younger brother, right? So I should be the one that gets the reward. And then it turns judgmental. It says, well, I should and you shouldn't. I'm better because I adhere to, um, to the standard better, right? And yet, um, interestingly enough, in the story, um, we see that the younger son repents. But but not the older brother. But then you've got the father, the third character in the story. The father who goes out to both sons. The father who, when he sees the younger son coming from afar off, chooses not to wait for him to come groveling back to him, but gets up and runs towards him. Something that was completely out of character for, for Jewish men to do. Right? runs towards him. And, and this younger son, I love it, he actually had prepared kind of a, a story that he was going to tell his father. He was like, well, you know, I've, I've got it. I'm, I'm, I'm fine to accept the, the position of a hired servant. But he prepared this and he starts reciting this. But probably even before, he, like the father doesn't even listen to him. He just says, servants, bring the best. Bring a robe, bring um, a ring, you know. Bring the fattened calf. My son is back. I've accepted him, him back, right? And the father who also reaches out to the older son, when he sees that he doesn't want to come into the house, he goes out to him. And the Bible actually tells us that he pleaded with him, right? When he was offended at the fact that, that he had forgiven his younger brother. The father that does not wait um, for us to come to him, but the father who, who comes to us. And that's, in this story, a representation of, of God. God who, as it says in John three sixteen. Uh, sent his son into the world so that all who believe in him should not perish but had, have everlasting life. God, who did not wait for us to adhere to the moral standard before he accepted us, but instead made the first move and, and sent Jesus into the world um, to take the punishment that we deserved for falling short of the moral standard. So that he can be the fulfillment of the law for us. So that in Jesus' accomplishment of what we could not do, we find salvation. Because God attributes that to us through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. And when we understand that, of course, our viewpoint on things change. Because it's no longer a question of, I need to um, remove myself from the moral law. I need to act as if it's not there um, and and try and forget about it. Neither is it a place of religion where I say, well, I know it's there, but I'm going to just kind of try my best to adhere to it and, and try and save myself from it. There's, there's a third way that the gospel presents to us. There's, there's a loving father who, instead of our action or um, this action, reaches out to us. And I just maybe want to tell a story um, from my life where, where God affirmed my character and it helped me to, to kind of understand this in a new way. So I grew up in, in, a, in a home um, where I, I went to church uh, growing up and I knew, I knew a lot about God. But my relationship with them only started in university. And and when I was at school, I remember people always used to come and they used to, you know, tell a testimony or talk to us about God. And at the end they would make an invitation and say, who here wants to who here wants to um, know God better, who here wants to, to commit to following God? And I would always get up because I understood that I fell short. I knew that the actions in my life were not um, meeting up to that to that moral standard. Then when I went to university, I, I heard for kind of the first time in my life, a different message that we could have a relationship with God that it wasn't so much about not sinning as it was about knowing intimately the God who created us, and that He had given us the gift of Jesus um, through salvation, not so that we can um, kind of in our in our own strength strive to be more perfect, but be, but he also gave us the Holy Spirit and empowered us to live lives of victory not because of our effort but but because of the gift. Um, the gifts that He's given us. And um, that really changed me. I mean, when, when, when I heard that for the first time and, and I responded to that, for the first time in my life, I had the power to stop doing a lot of the sins that I had been doing. And, you know, it wasn't that I was trying harder. There was something else. For the first time, I understood the love of God, that He's a Father that accepts me. I'd always been so afraid, you know. I remember growing up and being so afraid of Judgment Day because I was like, man, I know... You know which side I'm being separated to on that day, and I was afraid of that. And that was kind of the 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 the, the moral standard that was weighing down on my shoulders. And for the first time, I understood that that can be lifted um, through Jesus. And my life changed accordingly. I found power um, through the Holy Spirit to stop doing a lot of the things I've been doing. But it was a process. Now, I remember, in my second year, gr- while well, growing up, something that was important to me was the way I dressed. Right? I, I enjoyed dressing um well i sometimes i had a bit of a weird i think fashion sense and um and i got some comments about that but it it was unique and it was something uh, which i enjoyed to do it was it was important to me but in my second year um i remember there was a time when i started thinking well you know why would that be important that's actually something that's quite vain like clothes don't what you wear doesn't matter there are more spiritually important things in life right which there are but um but i started feeling very guilty about that and i remember i would like on purpose dress badly just because i felt scared that i would become vain or that you know i would i would disappoint god i guess or or something um and i would go to places and i would be like badly dressed and i'd feel horrible about it but i thought like i was doing some great you know righteous task or or something um and then later in, in that year, in my second year, I remember I went to uh, Angus's farm for that, the big uh, Mighty Men conference that he had where there was more than 400,000 men. And at that time, uh, my relationship with my dad wasn't that great yet. And he actually agreed to come with. And I was really excited about the weekend because I thought, you know, this is going to be a turning point for my relationship with my dad. There, I, was, I was really trusting the Lord that, that certain things would happen in our relationship and that it would happen in his life. And he, it was four days long, and after the third day, he had to go back early. And you know, the, during that time, um, it didn't really—well, nothing really happened. It didn't happen the way that I that I was anticipating it. And I, to be honest, I was quite down in the dumps because of that. And praise God, um, you know, later in our relationship, all of those things actually got got sorted out. My relationship with him was 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 completely restored. And um, but at that point I was feeling quite like down and, and, and in a sense disappointed and, and, and just you know with also, you know, throughout that year the, the, the clothing thing um, was one was one thing but just not not having a great view of myself even feeling like a bit of a failure. And I remember on the last day um, going to my friends who were at the camp with me and just asking them um, to pray with me because I was I was just feeling so down. And I remember they came around me and all of them laid hands on me. And my pastor at the time was also there. And he he started praying for me. And he he just said, you know, Cornell, I don't don't know um, why I'm saying this. But I just feel God saying that he loves the way that you dress. (laughs) And I was like, well, I just started crying. Because, um, you know, in that moment, God affirmed me in a way which I had... Um which I had never kind of experienced before, he affirmed something about my identity, not based on on how well I lived, not based on how well um I performed um but he it it felt to me like he put his seal of approval on me in a very special way i I told no one about that, and um it was it was just something that really that really meant a lot to me and that that really helped me, and I think that day I also realized that. You know what? What really formed me and, and shaped me into the person that I am is not is not trying harder um, to to meet the moral law. That's that, that is not the things that have that have that have changed my life because I've I've tried that before. I've 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 spent effort on, on on trying to be better. But it's in instances like that where God put His His seal of approval on me, where I understood His love in ways which only He um, could show me that. Those are the moments that my life changed. Those are the moments that, um, that my character was formed in, 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 in amazing ways. And those are the moments where you know sin and, and the things of the world lost, lost its taste to me because you realize that there's something better. You realize that there's a father um, who, who truly loves us and who cares about us. And um, that's really my encouragement to us today. It's just that you know, the, the truth is that, that there is a moral law. And the Bible tells us that we, that we fall short of that. But the answer is not trying harder or running away from it. The answer is the gospel. The answer is Jesus Christ. And, and the, the amazing thing is that God does not reject us because we fall short of it. Instead, he, he, he extends an invitation to us and says, Come to me and I will make you. Come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will wash you clean. Yo, i'm going I'm going to give back to you
0: <laughs> so thank you for that Cornel. that was That was wonderful and I, I so agree with it and very powerful story, this parable of the prodigal son, uh, or actually as you're saying, not the lost son, but the lost sons, because both sons were lost the one um, the younger son there might have been the physical distance between him and the father might have been greater, but the relational distance between the father and the older brother was just as great and um you know I so agree with you you know that that standard is there. And the problem, like you say, implicit in this parable, Jesus criticises both religion and irreligion because both religion and irreligion have to actually play down the standard, actually lower the standard. Because if you, if you want to do irreligion and just say, okay, well there is no standard, you're obviously you know lowering the standard. But but even with religion, we try and keep the standard. You have to lower it enough so that you you actually qualify. You know. You know, other people are bad, but I'm the, the standard is just low enough so that I qualify to be good and be worthy of all God's blessing and so on. And and this parable just teaches us that we so underestimate our sin, but unfortunately, like you were saying, we also underestimate the Father's love for us. Um, and uh, I, I think that, like you were saying, the gospel is the only thing which enables us to take that standard seriously. Because on the one hand, it enables us to, to admit that the standard it's too high and we don't keep it. Um, so we're more sinful than, than we, we ever dared imagine. Yet, um, the fact that we cannot keep and do not keep the standard is solved in Jesus, who did keep the standard, who was the only one who kept the standard. So we, we're not only uh, more sinful than we imagined, but we're more loved than we, than we ever dared hope. Um, and that leads to people who are both humble because they don't keep the standard um, and yet confident because despite the fact that they don't keep the standard, they are accepted mm. because of the one who did keep the standard for them. And uh, we just want to uh, submit that to you as the way to approach that moral standard, which we all know is there. It's, it's like like um, Cornell was quoting C.S. Lewis as, uh, as also saying, it. It's, it's right, it's written on our hearts. The fact that we feel guilty when we do certain things and that we all also feel outraged when, when people do things that we feel is wrong, um, shows us that that standard is there. It's a universal standard that we all are aware of. And to, to deny the standard or try to lower the standard enough so that we can keep it through religion, those are not the answers. So irreligion and religion are both not the answers. According to Jesus, both those are wrong. The, the solution is the gospel. The younger brother was willing to humble himself, come to his senses, humble himself, come back to the Father, repent and say, I've sinned against uh, you, and against heaven and against you. And um, that leads to a situation, and I want to close with this. You know, irreligious people don't repent because they, they feel there's no need to repent. Religious people repent because they've broken God's law. People who believe the gospel repent because they've broken God's heart. Because they understand, like Cornell was explaining, that it's a relationship and that God loved us enough to give His life for us. So I want to, I'm going to close for us in prayer. Um, and I just want to um, encourage you, and we, we're going to expand on this in coming weeks, but the, the Bible solution, the gospel solution... To the problem of sin is the only solution that really works. You know that you struggle with sin. You know that you struggle not only with your own sin, but with other people's sin against you. And the only uh, really good solution is the gospel. So I'm going to pray fast for that, and um, you can pray with me in your heart. Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, that, Lord, through Jesus and the gospel, we can actually take your moral standards seriously. Not dismiss it um, like the younger brother did or lower it so that we can pretend that we keep it like the older brother did but where we can admit that we haven't been able to keep it but that you love us nevertheless because of what your son Jesus the only one who has kept it maintain that moral standard because he died for us on the cross we thank you for that and we pray Lord that you'll help us to relate to your moral standard correctly, that we'll be humble and quick to repent, but that we won't try and base whether we are worthy or not on whether we keep the standard. But thank you that, that we are worthy because you you considered us worthy enough to die for us. You considered us worth dying for. And you you did it gladly. And we thank you and praise you for that. And Lord, in a world that is hungering, desperate to feel worthy. We pray that people's eyes will be opened to see that the only way we can truly feel worthy is if you declare us worthy. And that you declare us worthy in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your
1: greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joberg.com.